Hey, what is going on, everybody? Welcome to the Street Cop Podcast. My name is Jenna Romano. I am your no bullshit mental fitness coach here at Street Cop. Today, we're doing things a little bit differently. Instead of podcasting with my man, Dennis, I have Mr. Nick Wilson here of the Resiliency Project. Um, Nick is also a instructor here at Street Cop, and his course is called Coping with law enforcement trauma. So I'm going to let Nick introduce himself. But before I do that, I just want to say that I'm really excited to be chatting with you, Mr. Wilson. I am too. Thank you for having me. It's great talking to you as always, Jenna. Yeah. So we've chatted like a few different times informally, and we just have so many different similarities in, in our approach to our passionate topics that we have that I just thought that it would be awesome to get something on, like recorded up. Yeah, So that's, sure. that's what I'm thinking. That's what we're doing. So tell me a little bit about yourself, what got you here. Um, I know that you recorded something with Dennis, but let's not assume that everybody listened to that podcast. So tell me a little bit more about you. Yeah, for sure. Uh, long story short, I was a police officer and uh, had a great career, but due to the impacts of trauma, uh, I started dealing with a lot of post-traumatic stress stuff. Uh, so it wasn't just physical injuries. Uh, There's a lot of stuff that left was left untreated for a long time. And because of the stigma that is in law enforcement, it, it really uh, got to me and prevented me from reaching out for help yeah. when I started realizing that I needed it. And uh, as a result of that, uh, my life completely fell apart. And so after I medically retired, I started a nonprofit organization called the Resiliency Project. And here I am now with uh, Street Cop and a uh, huge blessing and honor in my life to be part of such an incredible organization. I love it. I am meeting so many amazing and talented people here at Street Cop. Incredible. I don't even want to say cops. I want to say people. They're just amazing. Amazing human beings. Amazing human beings. Yep. I thought I was going to be walking into this so unique and odd, kind of like the therapist bringing in mental health. There are so many different trainings that we have that incorporate incorporate um, mindset, that incorporate w- officer wellness. I mean, it, it's amazing. It really is. It is. Um, I think the instructors at this uh, company are legitimately top-notch. And for them to have been so open-minded about a wellness course and, mm-hmm. and, and how quickly we connected um, and how naturally it occurred uh, blew my mind completely. Yeah, I agree. I do. You've got like Tom Walsh, you know, yeah. his rookie to retirement is so much <laughs> more than retirement. He puts up some of the posts in the street cop um, in the Facebook group. And I'm like, wow, you like, you're getting into like the, the motivating factors of like retirement and keeping people on track with that end vision and what that looks like for them. He goes into all different types of um, wellness components. Uh, so I, I mean, Jeff Smith, like even just talking to him, like what an amazing, amazing person. Yeah. Um, just so, so insanely, insanely impressive. Um, 
So Tom Rizzo, I have yet to formally speak with Tom Rizzo, Mm. but Tom Rizzo, if you are listening, you're the man too. I see all the different posts and all the different videos that he puts up. And I'm like, again, like I hear you guys. I'm like, were you guys therapists in different lifetimes? Because I just can't, the level of insight and the ability to articulate that insight, it's just like, it's really, really awesome to see. It it really gives me like a, a lot of excitement to like keep moving forward. Yeah, they're very, very enlightened. Uh, Tom Walsh's class so necessary because so many people uh, after retirement, uh, they really lose a lot of purpose uh, because they've identified with the job and we don't really plan for retirement. Although we're always looking to get there as quickly as we can throughout our careers, especially now in today's world. Jeff Smith, amazing human being and good friend, Kenny. All these people, Tom Rizzo, mm-hmm. so enlightened. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Brad, yeah, Kenny. People, these yeah. people, like they legitimately get it. Uh, so they're they're warriors in my book because they're they're able to do their job and are true experts in their field. But they're also very open uh, to all things mental health, and I've seen them each personally help people um, behind the scenes. Yes, people that are struggling and need help and for them to be so open and, and accepting of mental health um mm-hmm. and my book just makes them the ultimate warriors they really i are. agree Blessings i really do i agree profession yeah i mean even dennis will text me like every once in a while hey like you know i have will you speak to someone that sent me an email just hit, like being so accessible to yeah. um to the street cop fam. It's just, it's, it's pretty awesome. It's exciting stuff. And you're doing a great things too. Thank you. I'm trying. You're you're, uh, taking care of uh, everyone here behind the scenes too. That's, it's huge. Thank you. Thanks. Mama head. Yeah. (laughs) No, it's, that's what I do. It's, It's part of my personality. So I'm happy. I'm happy to be here. I'm very passionate, um, about the mission. Spent a long time as a clinician working with uh, trauma, working with anxiety, um, working with addiction. I'm duly licensed for mental health and addiction. Um, I keep my licenses active, even though I'm not actively um, providing psychotherapy, just coaching at this point. Um, but I do keep my licenses active because I, you know, there's a level of continuing education that we have to con- continue to have. And I just kind of want to keep my foot in that door to know what's going on in the therapy world so that I can coach about it. So, um, and that, so yeah, that's critically important because that leads into that whole cultural competence and staying up to, up to par with with everything going on. Yeah. So, so so important. Totally. So that was actually like my first bullet here that I wanted to talk to you about. Cause like I said, we have so many similarities in how we see things, um, and our approach to things. So one of the things that I did want to talk to you about first conversation that we had within two minutes, we were talking about the importance of cultural competence when seeking out a clinician um, as an active law enforcement or prior law enforcement. Um, So, and when we say cultural competence, let's be really specific. Um, Knowing what the job really entails, knowing the organizational stressors that happen behind the scenes, um, knowing the amount of critical incidents that law enforcement is exposed to. Um, So one of the first things that we said was, I remember, 
seeking a clinician who has a a history um, and is competent in working with trauma, law enforcement trauma looks very, very different than civilian trauma. It can, it can. Let me, let me, let me say that. So it can look very, very different. Um, so just having a clinician who has a trauma um, background and expertise is amazing, but that may not completely do the job. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, <clears throat> I think you're spot on. Mm-hmm. I think in terms of treatment, um, cultural competence is paramount and probably the most important thing with finding a clinician. And I think that when you're talking about, it can be different in terms of trauma between the general population and law enforcement. You know, I, you know, I always say trauma is trauma and uh, not to compare traumas, but there is, has been in my experience, a uniqueness to first responder trauma. And then when you yeah. really break it down, even the traumas between um, mental health, with law enforcement versus let's say the fire service in terms of hypervigilance um, and the difference between law enforcement officers having that kind of high uh, hypervigilance and the biological roller coaster ride they go through throughout their days, weeks, months, years, their whole career. Absolutely. Very, 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 very different. And so I think understanding the culture of law enforcement and treatment modalities that are truly like best shown to treat that unique first responder trauma is huge. Absolutely. Even, even getting down to understanding how cops talk to one another, um, their sense of humor, uh, cultural competence, in my opinion, goes much more and extends way beyond what they learn in a book. Absolutely. Like for an example, uh, you know, you're talking about how, how cops speak to one another. Um, knowing that burnout and trauma can look very cynical and having that dark humor. And if a clinician doesn't understand that, uh, they may misinterpret that um, or react or react in a way that's very counter therapeutic to their client um, by kind of shutting it down instead of embracing it and exploring it a little bit more and understanding that that's a component of very prolonged exposure to um, critical incidents, uh, to lower socioeconomic uh, communities, to higher rates of crime, and knowing that that affects their beliefs on how they view the world, view safety, um, and how they initially size people up when they're meeting them. Um, And assess people, so to speak. So I agree with you. And I think that if anybody's listening to this and if anybody is contemplating um, looking into professional services, um, psychotherapy, that kind of thing, I would I would recommend, and I've said this before on previous podcasts, so pardon me if you're hearing it for a second time, but um, I would recommend interviewing three to five therapists before you even pick who, who you're most comfortable with and asking those therapists specifically, Hey, have you worked with, have you worked with a cop before? Have you worked with anyone in law enforcement before? Um, are you familiar with what 
what my job entails. Um, because I think that that's incredibly, incredibly important. And I think that it's also incredibly important if you guys are, and girls are going to be going there, quote, so to speak, um, emotionally with someone. You can't assume that because we're professionals, we know everything, that we're omniscient, that everything that we say is set in stone and you need to listen to um, because we don't know everything. Um, We are not advice givers. We're here to help you seek your own answers and identify what's healthy and what's what's unhealthy. So um, assuming that you're going to go into therapy, let's say you have a neutral experience, it shouldn't be neutral. And maybe you're going to compartmentalize that with therapy in general. Um, So don't feel that way. You need to be getting something really, really great out of it, even if it's uncomfortable. And until you achieve that greatness, keep looking, keep exploring. They might not be a good personality fit. They, we all have different modalities that we use. The modality that they're using, which means the intervention that they're using, the therapeutic intervention, um, may not be for you. And that doesn't mean that therapy is not for you because of a personality or a modality that you didn't jive with. Keep looking around. Keep, Like I said, it's like a job interview. You still have the need. You still need to hire. Don't think that the job's going to go away if you fire someone, right? Yeah, if we if we look at therapy as just another tool to maintain our mental health and make sure that our mind is right, which in my opinion is the most powerful tool um, in your arsenal. Um, and if we kind of relate it to law enforcement, um, it's, it's, it's like... Um, trying to figure out which firearm or holster you're going to be using and trying those out. Um, Or, um, you know, when we sometimes have to take SSRIs or sleeping medications, you have to find the right one, the right dosage, uh, you know, the one that really works for you. It's the same thing with finding a clinician. And we've seen horrible stories and heard horrible stories of police officers who have gone and seen clinicians and because they lacked cultural competence or didn't really know how to uh, relate to the, to the police officer, um, they really misread them and it affected the officer's outcome when, when that police officer left uh, therapy. So there's a huge responsibility, I think, in this culture, in this, in this country uh, for clinicians to really start um, if they say that they are culturally competent first responder clinicians, it's a huge responsibility and statement. And, and we can only hope that um, clinicians start really making that um, a true statement. Yeah, ethically back it. Yeah, I agree with you. And something else, you know, when we're talking about ethics in my profession. Um, we are not to do more harm than good. So. Um, if you are seeking a clinician, uh, if you are seeing a clinician and they're sending you down, um, a worse path than when you started, that's a red flag too. Um, and that will really, really reinforce not seeking out help, which was the, which is the original problem, which again, having the cultural competence to know that. Well, think about, think about it as per cop. There is a lot of, I mean, obviously, you know, there's different cultures and different 
regions of the country, different states, different cultures within each agency, right? Um, but the, the biggest hurdle that they have to overcome is that stigma. And then if they get to therapy, you, if you have a therapist that doesn't know what they're doing or aren't doing things for the right reasons, I mean, um, you're really ruining it for that person and others uh, for future treatment. The law enforcement profession is, by and large, a treatment-adverse industry. Yep. And so we have to start taking proactive steps and measures collectively to try to turn that around. Because I mean, it's not just about the astronomically high rates of suicide. It's the broken marriages. It's the, you know, the divorces, bankruptcies, people making mistakes on and off duty. Uh, and um, that, that dark path that sometimes police officers start going down when they start suffering in silence and high-risk behavior yep. starts taking place. They can't sleep and they're just looking for uh, that pain to stop. And it should never get to that point. Yep. I agree. I agree. We're, you're discussing all the different micro traumas that can happen um, and that path of self-destruction, which, you know, some another one of my bullet points that I wanted to talk with you about with being proactive versus being reactive in the trauma world. That's, I mean, that's trauma-informed, being proactive versus reactive. We're going to get into that in just a second. But seeing how all these things tie together, this stigma that causes people to suppress their emotions, not seek out, seek out assistance, which only it kind of like I'm envisioning a domino that just keeps falling and falling and falling. And then the next one falls and the next one falls. And in the law enforcement world, what I see, what I have seen with my own two eyes um, is reactive versus proactive, um, which is not what we want. I see what I have seen is people's lives have to completely fall apart. And I, what I mean by that is DV instances, uh, DWIs, even worse. Okay. And, and no one is reacting until you have, oh shit moments, liability moments. Yeah. And, the, and the problem is, is that if we're playing catch up, when you're already so far down that rabbit hole, it makes life for you and family, uh, your career. It's just, if we prioritize mental health from the onset in the Academy and if leadership embraced wellness as a as an actual um perishable skill mm -hmm. and if they really really wanted you know a healthy organization and less issues out in the street where cops are making mistakes because of decision making or other other things mm -hmm. um <clears throat> you know if they made this stuff a priority from the onset i think we'd be losing we wouldn't be losing as many cops as we are in this um, profession. And I think that, you know, prior to, you know, this last year and, you know, this year now, so many cops dying by gunfire, historically suicide has been um, the number one reason for law enforcement officers losing their life. And it's, uh, it's tragic. Yeah. No, I know. It really is. And I agree with you. I think, and again, that's another bullet point of how, you know, 
where you and I see eye to eye, that I think that it needs to begin at the leadership level. You can't expect the front line to make cultural changes within their organization um, that are not supported at the administrative level um, with not only policy and procedure, let's, let's move away from like policy and procedure with any of the influential individuals within that agency, um, who are admired and are looked up to. Um, I kind of, you know, I look at new recruits kind of like teenagers. They're very impressionable. Um, they're very eager to please. They're very motivated. Um, and they're going to follow suit. They're going to conform one way or another. So I agree with you. I think that that really, and we have some amazing, like I've talked to some amazing leaders in the law enforcement careers. Um, but I've also seen a, a real lack thereof. And, um, and I really think that that is a huge, huge component in officer wellness and, and yeah. stigma. No, absolutely. I think, uh, you know, I have seen in, in, you know, being at different agencies and having the opportunity to speak with different law enforcement leaders, command staff, police chiefs, and with line level. When I see a law enforcement leader, when I see a police chief make mental health an absolute priority, and I'm not talking about just having a peer support program, okay. um, which is not uh, to uh, kind of replace a, an actual wellness program, but when they actually prioritize wellness and they are doing everything they can to rid their agency of stigma. And when a police chief says it's okay to get help and you're not gonna be in trouble or give them fitness for duty for doing so, I cannot believe how many amazing outcomes I have seen when a, when a chief does that. Um, for instance, uh, Chief Neil Gang uh, up in Pinol, I just taught there for the last few days. And when I uh, was teaching, I could not believe what I saw in that classroom. When I saw so many officers being so brave and vulnerable and sharing their experiences, um, talking about different critical incidents that they've been involved in, and you see what's going on in the room with the chief being in there and not yeah. one person actually being afraid to get vulnerable. One, you know, people breaking down or, you know, not being afraid to express themselves. It is, it, it's truly amazing. You know, you can go yeah. one or two agencies over uh, and their cops are falling apart. No wellness programs, no culture of wellness or leadership that, um, says it's okay to not be okay, and we're going to get you help. Mm -hmm. You know, those departments are falling apart completely. Yeah. You got uh, amazing things with, let's say, um, Chief Ed Getpart from Fishers, Indiana Police Department. We'll be going out there uh, next month to teach for uh, Street Cop. The things he's awesome. doing with his department right now are absolutely incredible. There's gonna be some really exciting things coming out in the next couple of months uh, with what he's doing at his agency with, with wellness, so. That's fantastic. We need, those are, those are true leaders. Absolutely. And we have to make that the norm. 
Absolutely. We have to demand, we have to demand that that's the norm. Well, I think that that's what um, a lot of us are trying to do and, and working together to try to, to try to influence um, law enforcement leadership around the country to start making this a priority because, uh, you know, especially with everything going on in right. you know, 2021, it's, uh, there's it's enough going on. Yeah, we need just have each other's backs. Right. I mean, it's like, especially like, and I've said this a million times before, if we want, you know, the public to humanize law enforcement, law enforcement has to humanize law enforcement. Yeah. So oh, it's got to happen. It's got to happen within those four walls first. You can't expect the public to do something that you're not doing for yourselves. Absolutely. You know, absolutely. I mean, I'm with you. So like, let's talk for a second about um, peer support issues with peer support programs that are being rolled out versus wellness programs. Cause you, you just said, and I love it. Yes. There's a difference between peer support and professional assistance, wellness programs. There's a difference and each all are equally valuable and have their time and their place. Um, but let's not replace one for the other or, or know that the needs that are being fulfilled may be different with one or the other. So peer support could look, you know, the needs that are being fulfilled for the officers look very different than formal mental health services. Um, and depending on what, what that particular individual is looking for, um, suffering with needing assistance with, um, you know, that peer support might not really be cutting it. I mean, what do you think? Well, I think that, so, you know, having a peer support team is great, but, you know, there are, there are a lot of things to consider. There are a lot of complications depending on the size or culture of the agency, yeah. who's on the team, how people are selected. Uh, yeah. Who's not buying with people uh, on the team. No one's going to go to use them. If you're yep. on the team and you're known for revealing people's secrets or talking shit, mm-hmm. uh, you're, you know, you're you're doing your brothers and sisters a disservice. If you're on there as a resume builder, just trying to advance your career, um, you know, the troops aren't going to trust that person either. And then uh, the issues with confidentiality, if if there is not a a true mechanism in place to adhere to confidentiality principles, um, no one's going to go either. So, no, why would think, they? But yeah, so, you know, Where's if, the incentive? You're, if you're going to go use peer support and you could potentially um, lose your career because someone said something that they shouldn't have said, mm-hmm. or if a, if a peer support team doesn't know how to, you know, really respond, if there's not like an actual process in place, yeah. Um, you know, again, then it's just a, uh, it's a listening no ear. You might as well not even yeah. have a peer support team. But yeah, beyond that, you know, a true wellness program is one that should have, you know, pillars of wellness that are, um, you know, things that agencies I've seen implement. And for instance, uh, Pinole Police Department, they got financial planners, they have, um, an entire, well, actually multiple rooms um, uh, for wellness. They've got uh, rooms where people can just decompress, um, <clears throat> meditate, exercise, gym, 
in all their vending machines. They have healthy food. They've got, they brought in, uh, you know, a meal prep company to come and stock uh, their, their kitchen at the department. They have a family component. They do and work with, you know, families. They've got culturally competent clinicians. Mm -hmm. um, they, you know, <clears throat> there's a lot of things agencies can do. And there are already existing wellness models uh, out there for police departments, i.e. Um, San Diego PD has an incredible one. So I, mm -hmm. think, I think what we have to do is really look at how to start influencing leadership to start making this a true priority. I agree with you. And you mentioned a couple different important factors for peer support. I like that. So you said number one, trust. Because if there's trust, again, trauma-informed, Nick, how important is trust in the trauma world? Not, well, you will get nothing. Well, you will get nothing it, without trust. Sure. And let's take that one step further. Because mm -hmm. this is, you know, it's just been my experience that you know, as cops, we can, we know that we're going to see horrible things. We, we don't know how they're going to affect us, right? Until we actually experience that, right? Yeah. And we don't know long-term how seeing or experiencing certain traumas are going to rear their ugly heads. We just know yes. we're going to see it. We don't know how we're going to deal with it or how our brain or body is going to respond to it, right? Especially sure. cumulatively over time. So we, we, let's just take that factor. Law enforcement also, because of the very nature of the job, we're also very... Uh, distrusting of others, right? Right. And but the one thing that really, really devastates or kills a cop is betrayal. Yep. Okay. So organizational betrayal, uh, betrayals uh, from from colleagues, betrayal, especially from someone within the department, has devastating mental health impacts and absolutely leadership has an absolute direct causation on mental health outcomes. And I think that when you're, when you're bringing this up, I couldn't help but to think, you know, imagine being on a peer support team and imagine someone in your department coming to you. And that's not easy to do, especially in certain places, right? So they already, it's already hard enough to get there. Right. And let's say he says, to the peer support member, look, I'm, I'm hooked on pills, benzos, this, that. Most agencies don't have a process to, as to what they're going to do if someone becomes chemically dependent. Mm -hmm. The team doesn't know how to deal with something like that, which there's tons of things that you could do when, when challenged with something like that. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, and we've heard countless stories, they'll report that. It goes all the way up to the chain of command. Next thing you know that that person that reached out for help and peer support is on admin leave looking at a fitness for duty. That's exactly what I've heard. Yeah. So those are, those are circumstances that I've heard. Yes. That needs to change. And that's so punitive. Absolutely. And, 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 and a lot of agencies look at wellness and treatment from a punitive point of view and, and weaponize their internal affairs units. Yes. To respond to these things. We, we have literally seen it countless times. And so if we start looking at wellness and from a preventative uh, standpoint, from the oh, academy to their field training program to their first year probation, we start mandating wellness check-ins, not evaluations, but check-ins with a clinician every year. 
mm-hmm. you know, maybe provide neurofeedback or EMDR, make it, you know, normalize that, normalize treatment, um, yep. mental health. Uh, if, 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 you know, <laughs> absent 2021, um, if, if suicide is killing our cops more than uh, people that are, you know, warriors that are dying in the line of duty, we need to start doing something about it. Absolutely. I think it really speaks, the numbers speak for the, for themselves. And we'll look at what's going on in 2021. I mean, why are so many cops leaving? Why are so many cops quitting? Why are so many cops just absolutely demoralized with what's going on? It all comes down to leadership. What leaders do in their agency sets the tone. And yeah. if we don't have people that are willing to stand up, start doing the right thing, especially with everything that we're seeing with societal issues, which has people always say, uh, you know, don't get political or don't talk politics. And I, I don't. And I, 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 I would agree to that. But and law enforcement is a, supposed to be an apolitical industry. However, we have seen leadership around the country in various areas be influenced by external factors related to politics. And that has bled over into their decision making. And that is what's killing morale and impacts their mental health. So there is a there is a an interesting correlation between it all. And unfortunately, we're really missing the mark. I know. I know. I I know and I agree with you. I think that we're um, often political scapegoats, truthfully. I mean, if I have to be blunt with it. So one thing we're hearing, I mean, just just on a micro level, one thing we're hearing tons of um, are when leaders, law enforcement, when I say leaders, um, I just mean people who have rank. Uh, They're not that doesn't make them a leader. So I'm talking about command staff that are pulling in people from their agency and they're saying, you know what, this isn't this is not a policy violation or, um, you know, it just looks unprofessional, especially like during this time, Mm -hmm. they're basically saying, don't do this, don't do that, stop doing this, stop living your life um, because of the optics. And even though it's not a policy policy violation or, you know, something that would be considered inappropriate, our Mm -hmm. cops are taking a beating. I mean, they don't have a first amendment, right? In many cases, they, 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 they do everything to protect our constitutional rights and, and safety. Yet what, what do they get? They're dying left and right. They're absolutely just spiritually bankrupted right now, by and large around the country because of everything we've seen. And and they where 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 can they go? Where can they turn? Um, yeah. If, you know, society. I've always said this: society's not going to benefit from sick cops. And if anything, they deserve first class treatment. They deserve first class treatment. For all that they do, for everything that they sacrifice, they deserve that. We cannot have competent officers if we do not have healthy officers. It's a very simple concept. And I can't understand how it's so hard to understand. I agree with you. Yeah. I do. I mean, and, and, you know, you know, it's terrible to say, and I hate to speak like this. I, my husband, I, I've told him this before. I'm like, you know, it's just really, really sad to me that you're more valuable 
to society in your civilian clothes than you are in your uniform. That's a really sad thing. And that's how I feel. I mean, that could be, that's my, maybe that's my cynicism. Yeah. Especially as a, as a law enforcement spouse, gosh, law enforcement spouses. Could you imagine? Uh, I, I can't imagine, uh, being in a position where my spouse was going to work every day out there on the street. Like I, I, it's just, you know, so they're left at home feeling hopeless and helpless at times, not wondering what's going to happen. It's, it's terrifying. It's mortifying. And I yeah. think that, I mean, I don't know in your experience, uh, especially with the back end stuff uh, with um, treatment in the treatment industry and in the treatment world, when you were asking, asking, why aren't more officers or, or agencies, why aren't more agencies kind of doing something about it? Do you think anything of it has to do with money? I mean, people start, are they afraid that in your opinion, maybe we're going off topic, but are they, are they afraid that there's going to be a slew of people filing workers' comp claims? I don't think so. Well, uh, yeah, I don't get it. So what's, yeah, they're, what I think a lot of agencies don't recognize is that if they start prioritizing wellness it's going yeah. to save them money over time. That's what I say. Or, you know, they're not no payouts, let or less payouts on workers' comp claims or payouts to the community if there's a mistake because the officer's not well. There's just you get uh, higher work productivity from your uh, officers, uh, less degree of absenteeism, morale mm-hmm. is better, work performance mm-hmm. increases. Everyone wins. Yep. That's why I just, I'm trying to wrap my head around how I, so it's, to me, it's so obvious. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, and, and I guess maybe my, you know, coming back to like what you're saying, you know, being married to someone in law enforcement and feeling that helplessness, I guess maybe that's what landed me where I am right now, because I'm not really good at feeling helpless. Um, And I'm just kind of like, you know, I love working as a psychotherapist with one person within four walls and I'm just ready to go like macro with it. Like, I'm just like, I need, I need to reach more people. I need, I don't think that I'll be happy until there's real change that's made. And I can't tell you how many people literally have told me this is the dumbest decision of my life. Who are law enforcement, uh, workers, uh, so, I have to ask, oh no, keep going. Yeah. Go ahead. So, um, I literally have had people tell me like that this is the stupidest decision that I could ever make. Good luck. Why bother? Um, you know, like it just, I mean, the list goes on and on and I'm more or less like, keep it coming. Cause you're fueling my appetite. Cause yeah. I mean, I'll take it all on. You know, it's, it's interesting. Um, I don't, I think you're probably one of just a handful of clinicians I know that has a, a law enforcement spouse. And uh, I always talk about in my classes or elsewhere about like transfer trauma and, you know, how past traumas can affect us with, you know, new ones and how it's important to be able to recognize why we are being triggered by something, right? So as a law enforcement spouse and clinician, especially if you're treating or helping an officer who's in crisis, 
how do you protect your peace and your mental health if you are experiencing someone who's saying something that might be relatable to something that you have in your household? Right. Yeah. How's that work? Um, yeah. I, I think that that's pretty normal, unfortunately. Um, so I think that clinically, keeping my long-term vision really, really clear. Um, just like when I worked with individuals with substance abuse needs, I've had clients die um, that I was actively working with, that I had previously worked with. Um, I cannot save everybody. And that's probably what led me to burn out over, a, you know, an accumulation of things. Um, and that was difficult for me because I have experience with addiction within my family. Mm-hmm. So I, again, I went into that. There's a vulnerable piece of me walking into that, knowingly walking into that. Um, and I think that half of it is being very, very aware that I cannot be 100% fulfilled by help and healing 100% of people. Because I mean, if, if I walk in with that expectation, I mean, where, what, I don't think that it's realistic, yeah. you know? So, um, so seeing some of those similarities, working with first responders, with some of the things that I have experienced, with some of the things that my husband has experienced, I think that that is what led me to moving, like I said, more macro with this. Like, um, I love working with people individually, but seeing all those commonalities um, and saying this is bullshit, this makes no sense, something more has to be done, is kind of fueling my larger picture. Uh, so I guess there's your answer. I'm doing, I'm taking it all as fuel for my fire and I'm moving it towards, um, an even bigger, larger goal rather than, rather than one-on-one resilience. Yeah. I won't stop. I'll never stop. Same. Yeah. Can't stop. Won't stop. And, and you know what, that's, that's kind of like that mindset at, at street cop. And I love that. Yeah. Yeah. You know. You're right. <clears throat> I think street cop has a potential based on um, the plans and what all the different instructors. And I think street cop has an incredible opportunity to be a game changer and a change agent in, in this industry on so many fronts. I think so, because you want to know what we're talking about. Let's some of the concepts that we're talking about leadership, um, having influence, making positive change. They are a leader in the industry. And, and one thing that I talk about in some of my trainings, leaders do not have to be supervisors or appointed leaders. I define leaders by those individuals that have charisma, that have personality, that have passion, that care and have empathy for other people, and those who have influence on other people. Those are natural born leaders. You can't take that away from anybody and you can't suffocate that from anybody, I don't think. So street cop, in my opinion, 
they are natural. You have, you, that's what we were just talking about. All of these natural born, talented, dynamic people coming together who are largely influencing the uh, law enforcement industry and nothing anybody can do about it. I'm only, I'm laughing because we were on the phone earlier and we were on the phone yesterday and, you know, it just, it seems a little bit like the twilight zone because the world's falling apart. And I'm asking you questions about how not, how you deal with protecting your peace, your mental health. And I'm sitting here just trying to do the same. And <laughs> <clears throat> so I have to snip that yeah. 30 seconds out because I was yeah. just like, yeah, so we'll just keep going. Yeah, Talk it's, I mean, you know, yeah. What but but that's the thing. But let me tell you something, Nick. Let me no, I gotta feed off that for a second. Yeah, yeah, I get it. Yeah. You you make vulnerability masculine, right? That's what you do. That's what Dennis does. That's what Tom, both Toms, that's what Jeff, that's what Kenny, that's what Brad, that's what all these amazing instructors. I'm sorry that I'm not naming everyone. Um, but that's what these people are doing you're changing the stigma. Like I'm a female, right? So there are pros and cons to having me instruct on trauma versus having you instruct on trauma. There are pros and cons to both. Some people are going to gravitate towards you. Some some people are going to gravitate towards me, personality-wise, gender, background. There's a lot of different, a lot of different um, factors that would, that would influence that. But like, so and, and I'm, I'm the same way. Like I put things out there. Like I talk about some of the most traumatic things that have happened to me in my life and in, in, um, being married to someone who, um, is out there frontline. I mean, he's, he was a jump out boy for years, you know? So he was out there getting it. Um, so there is something that is so powerful with being vulnerable. We don't have it all figured out. I fall apart some days. Like I don't have it all figured out, Nick. When I hear stories and the, and I relate to it, there's a piece of me that it, it hits me right in my stomach. You know, like I'm not protected and shielded from all of that. And I don't have to be because it, I'm human. We're all human. But like you guys are really, really, you are putting the masculinity into vulnerability. And I, and I fucking love that. I really do. Well, I'm trying you know, not to curse as much. I, sorry. I, I, <laughs> I think we're all working together. You know, um, I think it's taking a village. And I think that that's where this power is coming from. And I think that we typically have always learned that vulnerability is danger in this profession. Even in training, you know, don't stand, you know, stand within five, six, per five to six feet of someone that you're interviewing, you know, watch. Every exit, you know, don't talk about this, don't talk about mm-hmm. that. I think that people don't realize it. We, I really, really wish more did that vulnerability, as scary as it can be, is so necessary for communication. It's necessary for being able to identify things that are bothering us from within. Mm-hmm. And I think that what we don't realize is that there's a total freedom with vulnerability. And there's a total um, I think that being vulnerable makes you stronger over time, and the more vulnerable you are, 
uh, I think that that's where you get your power back and start trusting yourself again. If you lost your power and no longer trust yourself or your actions or your decision making. So vulnerability is, I think, a tool to achieve better outcomes in life, especially for peace of, of mind. I agree. I do. I mean, and that brings you right into the topic of post, post-traumatic uh, growth. We, we, we talk, we, trauma can be so negative. And even when I was creating my, um, I'll be completely transparent. Even when I was creating my training, I brought some first responders from my family here and I had nurses, uh, firemen, law enforcement. So I brought them all over. Um, and they completely ripped my shit apart. They completely ripped my shit apart. And it was great. It was great. I mean, cause again, like I come from a growth mindset, like that's not going to debilitate me and make me feel like this is a, this is a dumb fucking thing that I'm doing here. It actually fueled, fueled me. And it was like, okay, I didn't get it right. Let's go back and do it again. And I did that the second time from a resilience perspective after taking a 60 hour resilience and, and it's called lead and thrive. It was a leadership and resilience coaching course because I wanted to become a board certified coach. Cause I don't know, I don't have enough certifications already. I don't know. So I took this leadership and resilience course and it's so insane how I spent 15 years as a therapist focusing on the medical model. What's wrong? How do we diagnose? Where do we go from there? And now as a coach, I look at this from such a strength-based perspective of what happened to you, not what's wrong with you. And how are we going to move forward? How is this going to make you more of a badass? I don't mean a stoic, tough, cold, turned off person. I mean more of an empathetic, emotionally intelligent, aware person. Absolutely. Great point. I think what you just said was really important. It kind of gave, gave me this idea, something that I've experienced. I think a lot of times when we look at our partners, for instance, this is just like a micro level thing here, but to put it in a perspective of what you're saying from how I understand it, mm-hmm. it's like we, we think a lot of times that we or our partners are just good, right? Because nothing bothers us or we're not showing that it bothers us, right? And they, I've heard countless times uh, about from people, you know, yeah, I'm just, I'm good. That, that didn't bother me or, you know, mm-hmm. as if they're robotic. Mm-hmm. And I think that those are the people who also stop living their life and they become more isolated and reserved. And, um, and I'm speaking generally speaking, right? And I find that those who understand what's bothering them, what's triggering them, how to respond to those triggers, yep. um, understanding that our responses to anything that is bringing adversity to our life is going to likely determine the outcome in a positive way. So as long as we respond positively to it, which can't happen unless we understand ourselves and why our past totally impacts the present. Um, It doesn't have to, but if we don't start doing the kind of trauma work that we need, then we start losing uh, a level of, of a, a quality of life that we don't have to lose. And then we lose time um, in life. They could have been spent building beautiful memories with people around us. Yeah. We become isolated in this place of, of 
not, and, and sometimes we really don't understand why. And I'm not, I think that, you know, what bothers one person might not necessarily bother another and vice versa, but I don't believe that people can go through life unaffected after a career in law enforcement and being exposed to the absolute worst things and that, you know, humanity does to one another. I could not agree more. I think people process things differently and, 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 and really can um, keep themselves in check. But how do you go from seeing death and destruction, um, acts of human depravity that shocks the conscience, you know, completely to the core? Mm-hmm. It changes the lens through which you see the world and sometimes the role, our role within it when this kind of stuff happens. It's like the, when the illusion of invulnerability is shattered that Dr. John Violante discusses, we change. So I just, I haven't met people ever in my life who have been truly unaffected. And I think once we start looking at, you know, psychological injuries as an injury, not disorders, um, and start learning how to best cope with what we're experiencing, only then will we be able to have uh, a sense of true peace, joy, fulfillment, purpose, the things that we all should be experiencing, but everything is very, very complicated, but it doesn't mean that uh, it has to be over or the end. I think a lot of people are losing hope. Right. It can it can be a new beginning, really. I mean, not to be cheesy, but I, it it can really, there are so many people that move on to helping others. It turns into this like altruistic, I have to give back kind of thing. I think we see a lot in the trauma world. Um, but that doesn't have to be the the only path. There can be so many more new identities that emerge um, after a trauma well, in a positive way. I thought my life was over when I retired. You know, uh, on my back, my arm. Um, you know, I was I wasn't in a good place. I lost so much time, several years um, from being kind of disfranchised from my family, having no relationship with them. I didn't know what the future held for me, but it like I was clinging on to hope, my faith in God every day. But now, um, not that things are easy because all this other stuff is coming, going on, which is a blessing. But damn, it's given me more purpose and fulfillment than I have ever had in my life. And those relationships that were once strained are now stronger than ever. So I know that this stuff works from personal experience and from what I have been able to see in uh, fellow brothers and sisters in blue. So I think healing sounds like a strange word in this profession, (laughs) but the healing journey for me is real. And, uh, I also always say, you know, you don't have to look at healing or practicing mindfulness as not being able to also be an effective fighting machine. You can mm-hmm. do both. In yeah. fact, I'd argue it'd make you a better effective fighting machine and warrior if you can oh, understand yeah. these concepts. I agree. I totally agree. It can actually make you stronger mentally. Yeah. Develop insights 
learn more about yourself um, that you would ordinarily not be inclined to do because you don't even, no one's ever taken you there, emotionally speaking. You've never had to deep dive into like personal growth. It's just moving about through the world. I mean, and that's part of what trauma is, is becoming very robotic for some people or very debilitated for other people. And they, I mean, and you've talked about past traumas. I love that. And that, that's a huge part of my relationship piece um, in my training. One of the first things that I talked about with Dennis on the first podcast, I really operate from the model that we are all traumatized adults walking around um, from different micro traumas from our childhood. And that doesn't mean that we were, you know, people think of trauma, they think of the most extreme situations of trauma. And that comes back to stigma too. But there are a lot of different micro traumas. Like in the, it starts off with your upbringing and your relationship with your parents and how you relate to the world through those experiences, how you view safety. We're brought into this world instinctually to assess safety. What is safe versus what is um, scary, which is what's a threat. I mean, that's like the animalistic piece of us. Um, and when, when we are young, before we are fine tuned, um, and our brain is fine tuned that that's, I mean, that's what babies do. How many, how many people do you know? That's like, you got the baby whisper that everybody wants to go to because there's something, um, again, like instinctually that just children are gravitating towards something that feels really, really safe. Other people that just visually or, um, energetically feel really scary and kids don't want to have anything to do with it. So, um, so yes, I agree. We're all walking in with micro traumas. Um, and I, and again, like an example that I gave to Dennis was, you know, if you, if you're coming in with a history of sexual abuse, let's just say, and you respond to one of your first sexual abuse cases and the abuser strikingly is so similar to your abuser, you're going to react to that. Or if you respond to present there because it's yeah trigger a pass. You're you're going you're reverting back. Yeah. You're reverting back at that point into in your mind. You know, or even having a call for um something that happens to a child and your child is the same age as that child. Um so there are just a lot of different ways that your traumas constantly resurface in your life let alone in this profession. So if you come in with a history of trauma, I don't even want to call it a history of trauma. You come in with your shit, right? Your baggage. We all have it. Right. And it's undealt with. It's going to manifest in this career because you're going to see it. You're going to be around it. And it's all about what you do with that. And then you keep reliving your trauma over and over and over again. And it's a vicious cycle and that affects all your, your relationships, right? And then uh, your decision-making and your perception of what people are doing, saying what they're, how they're acting or behaving, you know, you stop trusting everyone around you. If it starts getting out of control, the brain is only concerned with one thing and that's safety. When the brain doesn't feel safe, you know, you're in a perpetual state of hypervigilance and also that fight flight mode. It is, it's mm -hmm. an instinctual animalistic character mm -hmm. thing that we have that, you know, we're always looking for safety, but in, in, in the search for safety, sometimes if our decision-making isn't 
good because it's now becoming high risk because of untreated trauma. Well, then you start finding safety in a misconceived uh, way, and that can be very dangerous. Right. Self-isolating, addiction. Um, affairs, how about, you know, affairs. Yeah. Um, high risk. Absolutely. Yeah. Cause you're looking to feel better. The brain is looking for homeostasis and however it finds it, it's not going to be until later that when you're able to differentiate, Oh, was that a quote, bad behavior? Was that a quote, good behavior? How does that affect my self-esteem now? How do I view myself for engaging in that behavior? Despite the values that I have that work against those behaviors, who am I because of that? How do I feel about myself because of that? And it's just, again, like I'm just envisioning the dominoes keep falling. So if you don't have that perspective, exactly what you're saying, I believe, and I've experienced like, you know, uh, if <clears throat> I'm at the plate, block this one out too. Completely, no, that's gonna fucking say, but I was going to say, uh, <laughs> if you're not aware, if you're not aware of your mind and you're not having like this global objectivity in your life, right? It's so interesting how powerful the mind is in the search for safety. Mm-hmm. You can start doing high risk activities, uh, displaying high risk behavior. And uh, like the chemical responses in our bodies that are being mimicked by what we're doing and what we experience on the job, right? Mm-hmm. All these like different chemicals that go through those neural pathways that start releasing all this like, you know, excitement, joy, pleasure, and, yep. and high risk behavior. Reinforcing we, it. We can't, yeah, we can't stop chasing that. So we have yes. to learn different ways because we're we're becoming self-destructive when untreated trauma starts to take over in our life and everything that just feels good for temporary uh, satisfaction sometimes ends up being the absolute worst decisions that we can make. Yeah. And work against us. Absolutely. And dig us into a deeper hole. Way further down than we ever need to go. Yeah. I would say the more we wait, the more we lose. Oh man, Nick, this is great. I mean, like our time is essentially up, but I like love where we were going. I feel like we should like plan a trauma part two. I mean, like I could, I could go on this topic. Well, now that we're going like this, it's like now we I'm ready to go for the next one for sure. (laughs) Are we stopped recording? Yeah, let's do this. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Jen. I appreciate it. It was great. Yeah, you're welcome.